Welcome to the OT Digest podcast. On this episode, I interview Dr. Broca Stern about her dissertation topic on self-management during distal radius fracture. I love this conversation about the importance of treating individuals in the orthopedic community from both a physical and psychosocial approach. Broca's qualitative research study shows the relationship between increased self-efficacy and willingness to participate in daily activities after a wrist fracture. Listen in as we discuss her past and current research areas, tips for finding articles, and mentorship if you're interested into diving into research yourself. Let's see what we can learn to put into practice tomorrow. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. My name is Katie Kasparo, and I'm the host of the OT Digest. And today we have an awesome person on today, Dr. Broca Stern. She's a researcher and an OT clinician, and she really wants to share about what she's doing and what research she has done. And we are, I am definitely looking forward to hearing more about what she is doing and up to. So go ahead, Dr. Stern, you can take it away. Oh, thank you so much, Katie. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm just going to start saying a little bit about myself. Uh, I graduated from Temple University's Master in Occupational Therapy program in 2011. My primary practice experience has been in outpatient rehab with an initial blend of neuro rehab and orthopedics. But then I chose to focus more exclusively on the orthopedic upper extremity as I was preparing for my certification in hand therapy. I also have some academic experience in terms of academic education as an adjunct faculty in several OT programs. But most recently over the past few years, my primary experience has been in research as a PhD student in the occupational therapy program at NYU. I just finished that in May of 2020, so just a few months ago. And I am looking forward to starting a postdoctoral fellowship at Northwestern University very soon, so. I didn't realize you just finished. That's very exciting. (laughs) It is. Did that include like defending your dissertation and things like that? Yep, I just defended in May, graduated in May, all during the pandemic, so it was very exciting. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> Very, that's, congratulations. That's a big feat. I know it's a, a long process and you know, that's, that's exciting. Congratulations. So you have worked in outpatient. Um, have you, and you did some inpatient, you said? I've done some inpatient only per diem work, uh, just to get a little bit more of a broader experience of what OT actually is in terms of adult rehab. But all along, I've always been working in outpatient as the primary practice area. So what made you want to switch from that clinical background to becoming a researcher? So I am still struggling a bit with that question just because I don't know if I identify as a researcher yet. Researcher is a term that like, I'm not sure who actually gets that title. Is it just because you're asking questions and trying to answer them in a systematic way? Is it a job title? Is it publications? And if so, like how many publications allows you to call yourself a researcher or how many citations, you know? So researcher is, again, something that I would probably would be labeled as an early career researcher, but not necessarily as that an identity that I've really accepted. 
um, at the time. But with that said, I chose to start pursuing research. Uh, I was always interested in research, even during my master's and pre-master's as more of, I guess, a, like an academic or intellectual pursuit. It was something that always interested me, reading articles, analyzing articles, thinking about how I could apply those to practice. But then when I actually started clinical practice and I worked full-time for four years before starting my PhD program, I had all these questions that came up in the clinic. You know, I was treating clients and I had questions about treatments, about outcomes, about predictors of outcomes. And I started to realize more and more how research and trying to answer those questions in more of a systematic way could actually impact the quality of clinical practice on both more micro levels, so the individual care of clients, as well as more macro levels, so just more clinical trends and clinical practice guidelines. So I realized that within that current practice setting and that current job, there was really no way I could acquire the skills or have the protected time I needed to really start doing research, which is why I chose to go back to school and pursue that training a little bit more formally. Yeah, I like how you said protected time. That's I'm sure a lot of what a lot of people struggle with. Um, I know as a clinician, I had all those burning questions and I'd be frustrated at the end of my day. It's like, oh, now it's time for dinner. I guess I don't have time to look into that like I wanted to. Um, yeah, I, I would love to talk about that a little bit later and kind of, um, you know, what does that look like? Or is there people who maybe don't have protected time and maybe do how they could get into research? But I think we'll talk about that a little later. Um, so I would love to hear a little bit about what projects you've done um, and kind of, yeah, a little overview of some of your work. Sure. So I've done some pretty diverse work in terms of sort of two, two groups of projects. I really did not start doing any research until I entered my PhD program. And then I was fortunate to have the opportunity to collaborate with Dr. Yael Goverrubber at NYU and some of her colleagues on some of her multiple sclerosis research, where we were looking at different contributions to health-related quality of life, including two projects related to the role of everyday technology and quality of life but more aligned with my own personal clinical research interests. I am in the process of trying to finish a project, a mixed methods project, where we explored hand therapist knowledge, perspectives, and practices related to musculoskeletal pain. And that was an interesting project in that I was both a mentor and a mentee on that project. So I was being mentored by an advisor but I was also trying to mentor some graduate master students in that project. So that was an interesting sort of role balance with that one. We uh, just published our quantitative findings in the Journal of Hand Therapy, and we're hoping to get those qualitative findings out to a journal for review, hopefully soon. But I would say that my largest project to date has been my dissertation. And my dissertation research explored self-management in adults after distal radius fracture, so after wrist fracture. And that was a project that really meant a lot to me. It was one where I was able to apply some more theoretical information from the chronic disease literature, which is where self-management typically resides, and try to apply that to understand recovery 
after this more acute orthopedic injury. And dissertation research is a really, really special time and a special project in that you have a whole group of people who are just there trying to support you. You have your committee. I had my wonderful dissertation chair, Dr. Sushin Hao at NYU. You also have so much more time to really think about like the theoretical background of your study, those methodological decision points, like why you make certain decisions. And those are things that are always embedded in any project, but you don't really usually have the time to expand upon them just because of time constraints or even space constraints in journal articles. So it's really a unique time and a unique project, which was really a joy to work on. Yeah, I've heard that term self-management, especially more recently in articles. Um, and I've heard it across different disciplines too. And I think that sometimes OT is mentioned and sometimes it's not. So I love that you're doing, you know, making sure that OT is, you know, in the, in the mix on that. Um, I'm not sure if you, if you've had the same experience or, you know, if there is a, anything further you want to expand on that. Oh yeah, so definitely. So self-management, I would say is probably in a way in terms of the literature, almost more in the domain of nursing. So nursing has a lot of literature on that. And then psychology also has a lot of literature on that. There definitely is some OT literature, but really the more the fundamental underpinnings are more the psych literature and the nursing literature. And I think part of it's also just maybe the terminology that we as OTs sometimes maybe refer to some of those same concepts as maybe self-care. And there's definite ambiguity and overlap between those definitions and those terms and just trying to figure out what self-management was in the context of my project was something that took really quite a long time to conceptualize what definition of that term and just were more what theoretical background of that term really aligned best with what I was trying to examine. Yeah, I think that can be a huge barrier to even finding research to having the right terms because if once I find the right term of the thing or, you know, the term that is most studied, you know, it opens up a wide variety of things. But if you don't have that original term, you're missing a lot of stuff. So that's, I'm glad that you used, you know, different language and can kind of be in different uh, disciplines for sure. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about one of those projects specifically? Sure. So I'll expand a little bit on my dissertation research. Is that something that I'm still working on in a sense of I defended um, and the dissertation is available online, but I'm still working on really getting that into publishable manuscripts. So, you know, trying to break this really large document into chunks, which I can actually publish in, as manuscripts in, in journals. So the project was a mixed methods project, which is something that I'm really passionate about, how we can take sort of more of the quantitative and qualitative data and put it together and generate some new insights. And it was really more of a qualitative focus because I really believe in client-centered and patient-centered research as a really like fundamental thing underlying my work. So I uh, sampled, it was 31 adults, age 45 to 74, with a unilateral, so one-sided distal radius fracture. They each engaged in one session, so two to four weeks after their full-time risk support was removed. For the quantitative piece, they filled out some standardized questionnaires, and then for the qualitative piece, they engaged in an interview, really trying to explore some of their thoughts, their actions, and their social supports related to recovery from this injury. 
Uh, in terms of some of just the findings that sort of stand out, so from the quantitative side, we identified that self-efficacy, so people's confidence to manage some of the sequelae of their injuries, such as their symptoms, their emotional responses, their ability to engage in daily activities after injury. So as self-efficacy increased, overall things like physical, mental, and social health improved. Uh, and again, this though is correlational or cross-sectional, so we can't prove causation that one proved the other, but that they were definitely linked together. And then from the qualitative side, we identified that people made meaning of this experience of recovery as one of transitioning from hurting to healing. And hurting to healing didn't just imply in a physiological or physical sense, but also in this psychosocial sense of gaining control over their injury, reconnecting to their body, reconnecting to their identity, you know, really actively engaging in that recovery process as a way of also just restoring hope. So it was a really interesting in terms of the qualitative piece because a lot of those things were same ideas that are really talked a lot about in the chronic disease literature. So it was really interesting to see some of those same ideas really resonate with these individuals who had what, a, what, what might be referred to as like a relatively simple, you know, orthopedic injury. And then what's really nice about mixed methods is that we're able to sort of put together the quant and qualitative data to generate more insights. And with that, we were able to find that people who had higher self-efficacy actually reported more self-directed behaviors after injury, reported less uncertainty about like the boundaries of safe movement and use of their extremity compared to those with lower self-efficacy. So again, we were able to see sort of how the self-efficacy scores intertwined with some of those qualitative things. Well, that's very interesting. Um, I'm thinking back to when I was in school and you know, one of the assessments or the tests, we would say, you know, client has a distal radius right wrist fracture and how, you know, I don't think I thought about any of that other, you know, I just thought about the, the wrist. And, and um, I remember one time a, a mentor of mine said, when I was working with a client, she's like, you know, he's not just a hand. <laughs> and that was like, that really resonated with me because I was so hyper-focused on helping um, his hand, you know, be rehabbed. And that was just like, well, I needed to hear that. So I, I feel like that's similar to what you're saying, that it's it's a holistic view of, of the client and really um, in what may seem simple is, is a complex process. Um, I am curious, so when you say um, self-efficacy, I guess the way I understand, or what helps me understand is the opposite of that, like if they did not have self-efficacy would be that they would kind of be maybe um, guarding their wrist, maybe not engaging in activities, um, being nervous about the pain. Is, is that correct? Am I, is that a correct assumption? Yeah, so that's sort of like a twofold question of like what is sort of the flip side of self-efficacy and then what's sort of the behavioral, you know, manifestation. So self-efficacy is a cognitive construct. It's really the confidence and usually considered more again on a cognitive or, or mental level. So what I like about it is that it's really looked at as a positive construct in a sense of that you look at it as someone having more self-efficacy. So you start out as zero, but then it's an increased level of confidence. We don't really talk so much about as self-efficacy itself as like the absence of 
confidence, like on the negative end of the spectrum, if, if that makes any sense. Uh, but in terms of the behavioral manifestations, which is actually exactly what I was trying to focus on in my study, because a lot of the, I really appreciate what you said before, Katie, about, you know, and not just being the hand, it's about the person. And I think overall, the orthopedic field is getting better at that and understanding some more of the psychosocial pieces and mental health pieces. And as OTs, for sure, we've always approached it on a professional level with a more holistic lens than maybe other orthopedic, you know, professionals, such as physicians, physical therapists, et cetera, just because of more the philosophical base of our profession. But one piece that I felt was really missing was the behavioral manifestations, because we like talked about things like, oh, anxiety, you know, might be linked to poor physical function after, uh, you know, an orthopedic injury or even like pain self-efficacy or the ability to manage pain specifically or the negative consequences of pain was also linked to maybe poor physical function after something like, a, you know, a hand injury. But to me, it was like, but, but how, but why? Like sort of what was that mechanism? And again, through this qualitative study, it wasn't that we were able to really identify a mechanism in terms of like a statistical mechanism but I was really trying to look at those behaviors because to me, someone's thoughts and feelings might lead them to actions or, or not actions, you know, an action or lack of action, which would then cause maybe poor physical health. So exactly like you said before, things like guarding, you know, just being more hesitant to use that extremity sort of, um, we even just as an example, one thing that came up was with more social participation and social health, which is the piece which is not typically often talked about explicitly in relation to orthopedics, but they're people who had higher self-efficacy. And again, this is not generalizable because it's a small qualitative study, but just to give us an idea as healthcare professionals, individuals who had higher self-efficacy went ahead and engaged in their social activities, like for example, organizing a Super Bowl party you know, around Thanksgiving time, even though they had a hand injury and they just did what they were able to physically do and then just asked, you know, neighbors, family to, to just chip in and do the rest. Whereas other people talked about really self-limiting social activities and not even going out to make a social call. And this is pre-corona when they were allowed to, you know, go out to people's homes and do things like that. But they didn't even do something which they physically were able to do but they were sort of self-limiting because they really lack that confidence to even do simple, simple precepts. Um, so also there's like a lot of interlap or interplay between things like self-efficacy, fear, and anxiety in terms of more of the, the cognitive emotional pieces. They're a little hard to tease apart, but again, there's more just self-limiting behavior, guarding, being hesitant about using it, I would say those are like the really the key things that stand out as potential indicators that someone is lacking the confidence they need to engage and participate in what we want them to do. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. I think um, another thing that that made me think of is how, you know, how to, to support that in the clinic setting. And, and I know you said your study wasn't about the mechanism, but just to show that this is, this is related and, and how great that we know that, you know, and, and I'm sure you'll keep studying 
studying it and doing different size studies or, you know, someone will also hear this and hopefully, you know, be like, yeah, I want to help out with that. Um, right. You know, and right. On board. <laughs> but I think um, that is interesting to think about the how, how we could just have that lens in, in the orthopedic world. And that's exciting. That's a really, that's a big, I think uh, a big breakdown of a barrier maybe that had been there for a while. So congrats to you on, on taking that on. I, I mean, I'm sure other people have done it, but I haven't heard of it. So that's really cool. Yeah, no, thank you. And also I would say that even though it wasn't an intervention study, there are definitely just listening to people's stories, there are definitely things that stand out as we as we as OTs can best support those people because people did talk about sort of what looked like gaps in care or lack of communication in care, which maybe if those have been addressed, that person wouldn't be dealing with some more of those, you know, cognitive and emotional barriers. So one thing that really stood out was the importance of like this early and ongoing education, which doesn't just talk about the transmission of information about the disease or the pathology, but really talking about expectations, really trying to foster those more healthy beliefs about pain, about um, just recovery, as well as giving people potentially opportunities to maybe practice things in the clinic in a safe environment that we're then going and asking them to do at home because if they can see that success with that small behavior or small activity or that small part of a task under our supervision, then they'll be more willing to engage in it at home. So again, this study really didn't look at like whether or not an intervention was better than another, but just listening to people's stories really did highlight some things that we as OTs can do and I think as OTs, we're, we're really good at those things. Like that's really our wheelhouse, right? That more holistic perspective. But perhaps we have to be a little bit more intentional and deliberate about how we're doing those things versus just assuming that they happen in our everyday care. So kind of switching gears here, um, and you kind of already just said it a little bit, but do you have any other suggestions of how OTs can put what you've learned into practice? I know that's a really big question and um, you know, kind of depends on the practice setting and a lot of different things, but if you could think of you know, the OTs listening, what would you want them to hear and what would you want them to start doing in their practice? I would say one thing that really stood out to me in my findings was how things like fears and um, anxieties and even lower confidence or lower self-efficacy to engage in the behaviors we were asking them to do really didn't always relate to level of education or, you know, level of pre-existing health information even. And again, this is not a generalizable sample. So it's possible that if we did this in a more in a representative sample, that finding wouldn't really happen. But nonetheless, what that means is that there are individuals who come into our clinic who we may look at and think of them, oh, that's a highly educated individual. They probably understand a lot. We can just give them some information and they should be fine going home and just doing whatever it is we're asking because they understand. And they understand cognitively perhaps, but they don't always like understand, I guess, on a, a deeper level or on what I refer to my findings on a more embodied level and how it relates to them personally. So they may understand in theory that, you know, it takes six months maybe for this and this to recover, but how it really feels inside their body, they don't understand that until they go through that experience. So 
they end up still having those same fears and anxieties because what they're feeling they don't understand or recognize as normal, quote unquote, or typical in terms of healing timeframes. So I would say for me, something that really stood out when I'm trying to apply my own clinical practice now, because I still do work clinically on this side, is really looking at each person and sort of not assuming or presuming that level of quote unquote understanding based on, again, their educational level or, or medical background. We're really trying to look at them individually and see if they require more psychosocial support or more, you know, intentional support is, I guess, the best word. For that, though, I think a question all of us have to ask is whether or not we need to be doing more formal screening or, or providing more formal assessments of some of these things in the clinic whether as a routine basis or whether perhaps only if we sort of see like a red flag or yellow flag, which is, you know, things are talked about more in the back pain literature. So yellow flags would be more heightened psychosocial factors that are sort of glaring out at you. Maybe you would want to give them some sort of questionnaire, like a self-efficacy questionnaire or something like that. Or can we perhaps just detect these things through our informal conversations and just use more compassionate interview processes. So I, I don't really know the answer to that. You know, I think it's something that each of us have to sort of decide what works for us and what works for each individual client. But I do think that we, we often have a lot of assumptions about the people in front of us, which may not always be accurate or true. Yeah, and I think time is a limiting factor to that too. Um, you know, if you only have 30 minutes to evaluate someone, how do you fit that into? So I think we go with what's comfortable and then we kind of move forward. Um, but I think this is a good challenge to that. I love that you use the word embodiment because as I work with kids who are kind of across the board pretty anxious right now, um, you know, they're not ready to learn. They're anxious. They're in flight or fight. So if you're anxious at all, you know, even just going to a doctor's office makes you anxious. You've had a traumatic experience before. You're not really hearing what's coming in, you know, regardless of, of your uh, background. So I think that's a, that's a really good point. Uh, so how can OTs connect with you if they're interested in supporting your research or, you know, where you said the Journal of Hand Therapy, you have an article, but where can we find your dissertation? Right. So my dissertation, you can actually, you might be able to find online. It's in their ProQuest dissertations and theses collection. But that is actually one of the few publications which I, as the author, have full copyright permissions on. So you can contact me directly if you can't find it, and I can send that to you. Um, just more generally, though, you can find just a list of my works on either Google Scholars, my Google Scholar profile on ResearchGate, and then if you see something that you're interested in, you have questions, you can always reach out to me by email, LinkedIn, Twitter. My contact info is pretty accessible on the web if you, you know, just do an online search for me. And I would highly recommend that people do reach out because research in a way is such like a solitary endeavor. It's almost like you shot into the void. You, you know, you spend months or usually years working on a project and then finally, hopefully, you know, it's actually published. And then you sort of sit and wait and you don't really know if anyone's reading it or thinking about it. So getting some sort of communication, whether it's a question, whether it's a constructive criticism or critique that you can do something better in the future, whether it's just a comment like, 
I read your article and that idea really resonated with me. That is really meaningful to a researcher. So don't hesitate to reach out. And then if you are having trouble also accessing some of you know, my full text, you can also always reach out because even if sometimes we're not allowed to share the final published article, we often are allowed to share like a preprint or a pre-publication version, which is basically the same except for maybe some copy edits and maybe some formatting. I really appreciate that um, your willingness to help us all out. <laughs> and I'm sure as a clinician, you probably would have appreciated that, you know, as you reached out to maybe an article you found. So we all very much appreciate your accessibility and willingness to um, support the clinic and what's going on. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, one last question and then we can kind of wrap up. But how, so say I'm an OT researcher and I'm thinking, man, I really want to get into research now, or like this is actually a topic that is I'm curious about, or even just, I have my own questions. How do I make that jump or decide, you know, is a PhD the only answer? Um, yeah, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. So, I mean, in terms of just trying to dip your toe in, I think if you don't really have any research background, I think it's really important to partner with someone with more advanced research training or research background. And that can be a faculty member in a university, that can be maybe a physician who you work with and maybe does some of your referrals. I think one of the biggest challenges is besides for protected time is actually really strict policies in a lot of institutions about human subjects research, which are there to protect our clients. So it's not that they're arbitrary, they're there for a reason, but they can be very challenging to navigate. And I think that's sometimes what also puts up sort of barriers or obstacles between clinician and researcher collaborations because it can be really hard for multiple institutions to really, you know, agree on a collaborative human subjects plan and every institution has its own guidelines, et cetera. One way potentially to think about if you're interested in research, um, but you can't figure out how to navigate that human subjects piece is to maybe start with something like a scoping review or a systematic review because then your data aren't coming from your subjects, your participants in a sense are actually research articles and existing findings. And often you can still answer an interesting question that still relates to your clinical you know, goals or, or clinical interests. Even that though, I think sometimes people have a misconception that a review like that is quote unquote easy, it's not. It's extremely time intensive, extremely laborious, and in order, and the whole point of it is really to get it into publication. And if your goal is that, you need to really follow very specific guidelines to make sure it's of the rigor that can potentially be accepted. So even with that, you really would need to usually collaborate with someone with more advanced research training. But again, you're sort of skimming over that human subjects piece, which can actually be a bit of a barrier. Some other ideas sometimes too is that you can maybe be sometimes um, OT master's programs or doctoral entry-level doctoral programs have um, like student projects and usually they have some first student research and sometimes they are looking for more clinical partners. So sometimes uh, as the clinician you can maybe see if you can connect with a faculty member and sort of be a co-lead on one of those projects as a way to, again, just get into some of that research experience. 
Uh, going back to the degree question, I definitely do not think a PhD is the only way you can do research. There are plenty of people who decide to go the OTD route instead or similar, more of a clinical doctorate. Whatever it's called, there's lots of names out there in terms of what the clinical doctorate is referred to. But if you're interested in research, but interested in that path, I think it's important to pick a program that supports that research and gives you some research training inside, you know, in that track, because some might have more of a leadership focus, some might have more of a, you know, clinical specialty focus. So just orienting yourself and choosing a program that does have some higher level scholarship training can be very important. I think what's important is really just what are your goals looking the heck more career-wise. If you want to eventually like be a principal investigator on some kind of federally funded grant, if that's your, your passion and mission in life, then you need a PhD, right? If you just want to engage in clinical research and maybe even be on a grant, but be sort of a collaborator in a grant, you don't need a PhD. You can have some other degree, but you do need just then some more on, uh, I guess, on the job, quote unquote, training, you know, whether it's just more sort of formal or informal mentorship. Um, but the degree shouldn't necessarily be what qualifies, quote unquote, someone to be a researcher or not. Yeah, I think that kind of brings us back around to the beginning, how you said, you know, how do you define a researcher? We all are researchers in our own way. And <clears throat> I think that's helpful to hear as someone that, you know, maybe going back to school and thinking about loans just is just not fun. Um, so that is great to hear. There are so many other ways to get connected. I love the idea of connecting with an OTD program. I didn't even think of that. That makes total sense. Um, and how we can all be involved in this and how I, I know that a lot of researcher, researchers are looking for clinicians that are willing to help and how if we don't have that, we aren't going to have good research because it's not going to be applicable. I mean, for the most part, it's not going to be helpful to implement and easy, it, the easier you can make it for clinicians, the easier it'll be to implement. So anyway, sorry, that's my own soapbox. But um, I think that those are all great points and I really appreciate you taking the time, Brooke, to review that and just go over your study um, and help us digest it a little bit as we do in the OT Digest, just to be able to do this on your way to work or you know, if you are cooking dinner, be able to get a little bit more research in your back pocket, so to speak, and you know, use it in practice tomorrow. Mm -hmm.